Welcome back to South Africa's Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 16 and we're covering Operation Savannah, which took place between October 1975 and early January 1976. That was the invasion of southern Angola by the SA Defence Force in response to the outbreak of a civil war in the country involving the three main independence movements that had fought against Portuguese colonial rule. These were the MPLA, UNITA and the FNLA. Our focus in this episode shifts in a while to the FNLA's assault on the capital Luanda. But first, an update about the SCDF. Brigadier Skuman, who was in charge of the region, had set up his base at Sela in the southeast and he had plans. The first was to replace the commanders of both task forces, so he duly summoned Zulu's Colonel van Heerden to a meeting. Van Heerden left Battle Group Alpha behind at the port of Sumbe, south of Luanda, and arrived in Sela on the 13th November, along with 500 members of his now ragged force. He was told that Task Force Zulu was to be led by Colonel C.J. Swat. He was being replaced. Commandant Eddie Webb also received the military equivalent of a dear Johnny, and he was replaced as Foxbat Officer Commanding, by Commandant George Kreis. The SADF swapped out these hardened soldiers at precisely the same time as the anti-MPLA forces were to suffer a reversal of fortune. Last episode I explained how the FNLA's Holden Roboto had been biding his time planning a direct assault on the capital Luanda from his lair to the north at Abriz. So much biding had been going on that the coming assault was to be a complete farce, as we will hear. His initial plan was to head into the capital on the 10th November, the day before independence. This would have been highly symbolic, a triumphant entry into the heart of MPLA territory. But Cuban soldiers and weapons had been pouring into the capital since early October, and every day wasted was another nail in the attackers' coffins. The MPLA had a plethora of heavy weapons, while the FNLA had a few panard armoured vehicles and one piece of long-range artillery. This ragtag group of semi-trained soldiers was going to be scared stiff when they faced the MPLA's main weapon of choice, the Russian BM-21 multiple rocket launcher, aka Red Eye. This World War II-era weapon may have been obsolete, but in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, or something to that effect. As the South Africans had discovered, the 122mm rockets were not particularly accurate, nor lethal for troops well-trained and dug in, but for those walking about in the open, 20 or 30 of these landing nearby was fatal, and for under-trained soldiers, terrifying. By now, the CIA had taken to delivering periodic shipments of light weapons to Roberto, but because the Americans on the ground were actually concealing the operations from the U.S. Congress, the shipments were irregular and lacked heavy weapons. Meanwhile, Brigadier Ben Rus of the SADF had been based at Ambridge as liaison officer, and the relationship was far more proactive because Rus was backed 100% by his cabinet. Parliament had no idea what the Defence Force was up to. It was all secret. The National Party of South Africa had pretended the SADF was only advising UNITA and the FNLA as the two Angolan movements fought the Soviet-backed MPLA, but the reality was hundreds of South Africans were actively fighting inside Angola. The full details of what they did only emerged years later. Rus was also able to secure armaments all the way from Rundu in South West Africa, including bazookas and heavier weapons. When SADF Major General Constant Fulun reviewed the plans to attack Luanda, he was seriously concerned. The first major challenge was Roberto's troops. They lacked training, and as Willem Steenkamp says, hardly top of the line. Yet a few hundred partly trained tribesmen from his Bakongo people, along with 120 Portuguese mercenaries, a few faint-hearted Zairean troops thrown into the mix, and a handful of resident advisers. These, of course, were Rus and members of the CIA. 
Roberto had no tanks, no heavy weapons, and a force that was more like a rabble. The geography of the region was also unfavourable. The approach to Luanda was bordered on the west by the Atlantic Ocean and on the east by marshland, more extensive now because it was the middle of the rainy season. Furthermore, Roberto's troops harboured a traditional fear of marshes, believing they were full of man-eating snakes and refused to consider attacking through the maze of waterways. This meant they'd approach along the main roads, which of course meant that the MPLA could set up and range their numerous heavy weapons, guns and banks of 122mm rockets and just wait for the inevitable direct assault. The Cubans who were in charge of most of these heavy weapons had been found wanting when it came to bush warfare. They were excellent at deploying weapons in a conventional defensive position, but woeful when it came to African erratic-style warfare with the highly mobile type of fighting it entailed. Their failure to stop the SADF in its headlong rush through Angola also meant these MPLA units suffered from their own morale challenges. Fulion and Drus knew that the FNLA had to try approach Luanda away from the roads using the waterways, but they also knew there was no way Roberto would do this. It's interesting to note that the South Africans did not want to take the Angolan capital, Luanda. Imagine the collateral damage that would have caused with hundreds of thousands of civilians caught in a conventional war. This is again where you have to stop for a moment and consider strategy. As you've heard, the SADF was following government plans, which were linked to a political solution of some kind. It was not supposed to be a military solution, where another state was crushed in a war. The drive into Angola was to secure southwest Africa's northern border. In doing so, they would hand over control of southern Angola and its ports to UNITA and the FNLA as allies, which would then be a useful buffer zone against their main enemy, SWAPO, the Southwest African People's Organization. I've spent a number of episodes explaining how the invasion developed, and as you know by now, the SEDF should have been out of Angola by Independence Day on 11th November. Every day beyond this date was threatening the tenuous strategy, which had started out as hopelessly naive. Every day that the SADF remained in the country, it battered South Africa's propaganda campaign internationally. Sure, the nationalists back home could boast to their voters, who listened assiduously to the South African Broadcasting Corporation, about their so-called advisers helping defeat the MPLA in what one American called the most effective blitzkrieg since the German invasion of France in the Second World War. They could swagger about in their trilbies and matching moustaches at party meetings about how the communists were being dispatched, but the real story was Prime Minister B.J. Foster and his Defence Minister P.W. Butter were now doing real damage to their strategic ambitions. Luanda was crumbling, that is true. Food rationing and restrictions had been imposed and the morale of the civilian population was low. The hydroelectric scheme at Dondo in the southeast had been damaged and was under UNITA attack, which meant that power failures were happening every day. Water supplies were damaged by both the UNITA and FNLA units who were focused on the traditional sectarian areas of Angola. The MPLA did not control the north nor the south. The basic idea of ensuring Angola was broken seemed to make sense as a military strategy, but it was a broken political strategy. For the militarists, now controlling the narrative inside the National Party, with its history of preaching about a struggle against the English, Angola was a godsend. The Roy Khafar, the Red Danger, had yet to emerge fully in nationalist propaganda pamphlets, but it was coupled by the Swart Khafar, a fear of black majority rule. Now leaders like P.W. Bota and Magnus Malan were ascendant. The militarization of South Africa was about to begin. Brigadier Roos and Ambrose had advised the FNLA's Roberto to secure the regions under his control, as UNITA was doing, 
This would mean that the MPLA would be forced to negotiate a political solution and was the smart move in this African game of battle chess. Roberto was not smart. He was angry, vengeful and worse, arrogant and a resentful sectarian who thought the Bakongo people were blessed by being better than all others. He believed in some kind of God-given superiority for both himself and his Bakongo. Earlier in November, on the 4th, Magnus Milan and Constant Fallun had paid a secret lightning visit to Holden Roberto at his port lair, where they tried to convince him that a direct assault along the main roads was not the wisest military strategy. Roberto refused to entertain any other option. They asked him to reinforce the ground he had taken in fighting over the past seven months. After securing the core regions under his control, he should send guerrilla attacks at night into the MPLA strongholds, destroy the capital's water and power supply, and eventually they would be dragged to the negotiation table. But Roberto was in a rush, a suicidal rush, as we'll hear. P.W. Bush and the cabinet had a big decision to make. What kind of support would they offer to a man who believed he needed none? The first, which was almost fatal for the men of the artillery, was to send three 5.5-inch medium guns to support the FNLA assault. These were duly loaded aboard C-130s at Vatukluf Air Force Base on the morning of the 8th of November and flown into Angola under the command of Major J.C.D.F. Bosch. Three Canberra bombers would also fire missions to support the attack. From the South Africans' point of view, the plan was to bomb MPLA defensive positions around Luanda on the morning of the 9th of November while Bosch's guns would fire a barrage of anti-personnel rounds shortly afterwards to soften up the enemy. Meanwhile, the battalion of the FNLA's best troops under a Portuguese former Secret Service agent called Colonel Santos E. Castro would seize an important bridge over the Bingo River to the north and northeast of the capital. Roberto's main force would then roll down the main road, and once across the Bingo Bridge, the artillery would move in behind and fire on enemy positions defending the city itself. The important factor to note was a need for cohesion and coordination. When dealing with two different armies, let alone the movement of aircraft and artillery, establishing timing would always have been a challenge. Unfortunately for the SADF, Roberto's concept of time and scheduling was somewhat haphazard and ultimately self-destructive. And there were issues with the SADF as well, as we're going to hear. On the morning of the 9th of November, at 0500 hours 40, shortly after dawn, the SADF artillery barrage began at precisely the moment that the SA Air Force Canberras flew overhead and dropped their bombs. While the artillery barrage worked, the bombs didn't, because only one of the dozens dropped by the Canberras actually hit its target. The SA Air Force was flying at extremely high altitude, and this made pinpointing the defensive positions difficult. Still, companies of MPLA troops withdrew from the area unnerved by the bombing. Having kept their side of the bargain, the SADF now waited for Holden Roberto's Colonel E. Castro and his best men, and then they waited some more. What had happened that morning was Roberto had awoken late. Then he had what was reported to have been a leisurely breakfast. His men began to move 40 minutes late and drove straight into a large group of 800 Cubans and MPLA waiting for them on the other side of the Bengo River Bridge. They had guessed the FNLA would come down the main road like fish swimming in a barrel, and that's what Castro did. The Cubans, armed with a variety of heavy weapons, including recoilless guns and the BM-21s, had set themselves up on high ground overlooking all approaches to the bridge. It's clear that had the FNLA attacked through the marshes, they would have faced similar defensive positions, but not in such a confined space as a road. The artillery pinned down the FNLA troops. Castro tried to convince his NCOs to move the men into the marsh, but they refused. Traditional and ancient fears of marshes were too much, 
and these heavily armed soldiers balked, believing the aforementioned man-eating snakes would gobble them up. Brigadier Ruiz, monitoring events, was now beyond worried. He suggested that Roberto's men swing further around eastwards and try an outflanking maneuver, but their commanding officer was unmoved. It was full frontal, or death, and death it would be. The main road into Luanda now became known as Death Road because of what took place. Hundreds of FNLA troops were forced into direct attacks on heavy weapons in well-secured positions, raining down fire and brimstone and everything that approached the Bengo River. One by one, Roberto's armoured cars were hit and knocked out. The FNLA troops, to their credit, continued attacking and moving mortars into position to try and strike against these Cuban heavy weapons. And now we need to talk about a little conspiracy theory. One which emerged later was that someone had removed the mortar rounds firing pins which then rendered them useless. It was suggested that the white CIA officers had done this and the rumours spread to the SEDF on the ground. Later investigations by the economist journalist Robert Moss writing in 1977 found that the CIA had only managed to deliver 10 heavy mortars and 6 recoilless guns to the FNLA the day before the attack. Instructions for their use and pins were delivered at the same time, but the two sets of items somehow were separated and the manuals and pins were lost. However, this is a red herring. The exposed mortars and recoilless guns would have been unable to secure a victory at the strategic bridge, no matter what these conspiratorialists say, because the entire strategy was hapless, to say the least. The SADF had officers steeped in the tradition of Boer warfare and conventional training that stipulates a direct assault on a heavily defended position along a confined trail in broad daylight without massive numerical superiority is lunacy. It's just not a clever way to fight a war. The FNLA troops trying to cross the bridge were in a death zone and were now dying in large numbers. This was too much and they began to desert their positions. Quoting from John Stockwell's book In Search of Enemies, he writes that the FNLA soldiers' hearts burst with clutching terror as they dived to the ground or stood helplessly mesmerized watching the next salvo landing in their midst. The trickle of men retreating turned into a flood. It was a rout for the SADF. It was a disaster. The artillery was now exposed without infantry support, and Ruiz ordered the guns to withdraw further north towards Ambriz along the coastal road. Then he radioed Rundu HQ in southwest Africa with the bad tidings. Rundu HQ messaged the South African cabinet. What do we do now? The disastrous defeat of Roberto's men was not fully grasped by the political leadership back in Pretoria. It was now time to get out of the north of Angola by all means. Still, the cabinet hesitated. If you look at the men making these decisions, and many more to come over the next 13 years of war in Angola and Southwest Africa, you'll see a pattern that had already been formed. They believed in the gun in the Bible. They'd used it to defeat the Zulu at Blood River, the English at Majuba and Spionkop, and in a similar way to Roberto in the superiority of the white race fighting blacks in Africa. It was a strategic blind spot, as you're going to hear many times in the coming episodes. Defeat in these circumstances is always blamed on the ally, who in most cases was black. The FNLA was led at this point by a tribalist who believed the same, except he thought his Bakongo people were greater than everyone, including white South Africans, and later blamed the SADF and non-Bakongo blacks in the FNLA, along with the CIA, for his botched attempts at becoming a kind of Angolan Caesar. Politically, there was still a tiny chance that the South African strategy at the OAU would work. A miracle moment was possible. 
The MPLA regime had not been recognized because the Independence Day celebrations of 11th November were taking place without any form of election process. The UN was in a quandary. The AU had made no statement of support. The left-wing government of Portugal was also mute. And behind the scenes, the American government had continued to pressurize the South Africans to remain inside Angola and fight what they thought was the communist threat. You can see it's easy enough to criticize, and yet at this time, voices inside the South African government were raising difficult questions about what the strategic gain would be in attacking Luanda. The Benguela Railway I've mentioned was basically in UNITA and SAD of hands at this point. Its value to Angola was immense as it transported the copper ore out of Zaire's Katanga province almost directly west to the Atlantic Ocean and then onwards to Europe, America and Asia. It's also true the South African cabinet did not know just how close to complete collapse the FNLA was. Roberta's obsessively arrogant determination to attack full frontal and late had finally shattered his army officer and NCO's resolve to fight. In the next eight weeks, the FNLA would be pushed far to the northeast, away from all the important towns and cities. The CIA would also decide to withdraw support from anti-MPLA forces in the region, while the remaining colonial Portuguese had begun to flood out of the country in huge numbers. There were now 4,000 Cuban soldiers in Angola, and those numbers would rise, as we're going to hear. And the SADF had an even bigger immediate problem. Their artillery unit was now stranded in northern Angola and about to face an assault by the MPLA and the Cubans. Brigadier Ruiz and 26 of his staff, as well as millions of rands of cryptographic equipment, was also stranded. He decided that he would take his own life if he was captured. Luckily for him, the South African Navy had other ideas. We'll return to that story next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. You can also send me a direct message on Twitter, at Des Latham, or head off to the website, abwarpodcast.com, and email me from there. Until next, tot ziens. Thank you.